Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of Here We Go Again, Israeli Politics. Lapid appointed as head of party. Corona mandates and confusion. An interesting poll. Chomesh being removed. And two MKs in sticky legal situations. This is Here We Go Again. Okay, for our first topic. Yair Lapid, the head of the Eshatid party and the replacement prime minister, as well as the foreign secretary, uh, has officially won the nomination uh, of the Eshatid party. He opened it up for elections uh, a while ago. The uh, ending of any nominees to come and present themselves up for elections is closed. Since he was the only one who decided to run, he won by default. So this is a pretty interesting um, turn of events, actually. If you go back to two elections ago, Yari Lapid was actually challenged by his number two, Ofer Shelach. Okay? Now, Ofer Shelach was number two since the day Yeshatid was founded. And to understand that there was a rulebook and an agreement in Yeshatid when it was founded, that within five years of its founding, for five years, Yari Lapid, which created the party, will stay the head of the party, the chairman. And then after five years, there will be a primaries to choose the new chairman of the, of the party. After five years, that did not happen. Yair Lapid did not push for that. No one pressured him to do it because he was the clear um, uh, chairman. And Ofer Shalch, number two, came out publicly and said, in the mandate of our uh, party, we need to go to elections or primaries. Yair Lapid said no. He said that he's leaving. He quit. He formed his own party, ended up not getting into the government, and is now basically gone politically. Now, Yair Lapid insisted on not doing primaries then, but suddenly now, right after the government, this government was formed, he went to primaries. Why? Because it was very clear he was going to win. And you could see that this is true when no one even put up their name to run against him. Now, another point that's important to understand on why these elections are problematic is the fact that it's, it's not like a regular primaries where you have, you know, all of the people that are registered vote for who's going to be the head of the party but rather it's a list of people that are in charge of different branches of the party in different areas. But all of those people were nominated by people that were nominated by Lapid, which meant that it wasn't really a fair game because if anyone would run up against him and if people would vote for them, they'd be voting against the person who hired them in the first place. So is it a big deal? No, because in the end it was very clear that he was gonna win anyway and it really is his party, but it wasn't the most democratic process. So, just like an uh, important thing to note here is that elections for parties and not for the actual country have no obligation to be democratic. Many um, different parties that run have no elections whatsoever. Uh, Lapid didn't have it at the beginning. Bennett doesn't ha didn't have a lot of co parties that have, have they don't need to have uh, democratic elections. Um, and they never claimed that it was democratic. They just claimed that they were going to do a primary for the party. So I, I do think it's important to note it wasn't that he lied to the members of his voter base and his party. Okay, now we'll move on to the COVID update of the week. So uh, the new variant has taken a strong hold in the country. Uh, there are a lot more cases. And as a result, the government has decided on new restrictions. Um, we have discussed some of the new restrictions last week, um, be it pretty much the airports being entirely closed, closing down essentially all tourism aspects of the country. They are also now pushing a lot more for 
limiting gatherings and uh, forcing, uh, once again, uh, expanding the green permit, uh, enforcing vaccination cards on more places that you go in. Uh, they also have announced that they're going to push for a fourth vaccine for people. Um, again, they have not stated the medical proof behind that, but they stated that they will. Um, and as a result, uh, there have been many studies made by the different uh, bodies in this country that have stated that under the new restrictions set and the new quarantine rules, in the coming weeks, we may see hundreds of thousands of citizens of this country in quarantine. So I'm, I'm kind of conflicted, and I tend to be very conflicted when it comes to this topic. There's one view that's coming and saying, look, we got to live with Corona. It's going to come on and come. There's going to be different variants all the time. You got to move on, continue the vaccinations when the vaccination comes out, and then everyone can live their lives. That's a view. And, and I can totally understand that view because again, if this is going to go on for the next 10 years, at one point, it's, you got to live with it. The, the other view is saying only do something if it's really dangerous and if you really need to. And on that view, I'm coming and saying, you know what, as someone who was bashing Bennett many times, he kind of proved everyone wrong. He came, he was strict, he didn't release it because there wasn't enough data. And look, the Omnicron is spreading everywhere like wildfire. Now again, the answer to that to be, is it so dangerous, is it really killing? And I can, I, can, I can accept those claims. But at the same time, if we now get to a situation where there are tens of thousands of people that are sick, Bennett was more prepared than any other country in the world. And he was. And he made the things stay strong and he made it preparations. If we need to close it down, he can close it down in a very uh, uh, um, mannered way. And in the end, some would say how it's hurting the economy. And obviously it hurts the economy, but there's many ways that it's keeping the economy afloat with inside the country. So that's not that fair because the economy really isn't being kept afloat. You're essentially pushing to a lockdown without officially calling it a lockdown. They're all, they voted to move 50% of all government employees to work from home. And we have no idea how that's going to affect the government bodies that are ineffective and pretty much useless as it is with the full force of their employees in the office. Aside from the fact that you have vaccines, therapeutics, we're not at the stage we were in the original lockdowns. We're not at the same place anymore. And Bennett was the person who argued consistently that we're going to have to live with COVID. And if you're going to live with COVID, that's fine. And I get you're saying he was more prepared. But where did that preparedness help you? We're essentially going to be in the, in, in the same place that Britain is, that Australia is, that the States is. How are we any better off than any other country? That's, you could say that about any time that someone prepares. Because when you limit the days every day that there, there is a, a multiplication of the sick people, and we are delayed it. Delayed by even two weeks makes a substantial difference. How? If anyone, everyone's going to get sick at the end of the day, how does that make a difference? Not everyone's going to get sick. It gives you enough time to prepare and try to limit it down. It gives you time to... to, to get more vaccines out beforehand. And again, I'm not advocating for that view. I'm just saying it is a legitimate point of view where if I said two weeks ago after it just, you know, it ended and we gave quarantine for three days and I was like, okay, move on. It's fine. It's not a big deal. It's not spreading as much as you want. It's not as dangerous as what you want. Not what you want, but as much as it is. At this point, I'm saying agree. you could totally disagree with the entire method that, that Bennett is taking, but it's a legitimate one that has backing and it seems like there's more of a plan than I thought until now. What is the plan? What is their limiting circumstances? When are they saying we're done? Because even before this variant came, we were stuck with the masks. The masks didn't appear to be going anywhere. We were stuck with the green permit. They, were, they don't appear to have ever have a need to step back from these, I get it, from lockdowns and from extreme measures to step back. Why should they ever step back 
from the mask and things like that. And as we mentioned, this variant is considerably more infectious from the current data from South Africa, 140 times more infectious than the original variant, 70 times more infectious than Delta, but considerably less dangerous, which is a good thing. Meaning that chances are most people are going to get this. Meaning, is anything he's doing going to stop it? I don't know. Is it worth completely shutting us down again? I doubt it. So I think it comes down to the question of data, and this is a problem that we've had throughout literally the entire process of COVID from day one, is that the data is very unclear from South Africa to uh, Israel. The data is very unclear between the ministers themselves, and we've seen it in the debates that they've had, that people just had different information about how many people died, whether or not people died, you know, when Bennett threw out the two people died in South Africa, and then he was proven that that never happened. I'm sure he didn't throw that out of, you know, out of a hat and just make that up. Someone told him to this. This was incorrect information. And he stated it, which made him look super unprofessional, and it was. But it's just very complicated data, and this is true about many different ministers. One thinks that 600 people died, and one thinks that no one died. It's very hard to make decisions. And the third part of that, which is the worst part, is the data that's being pushed towards the citizens. And this, from day one, I said, is the issue is that you're asking me, I was just giving support to the fact that they have a plan, and then you were about to ask me, what's the plan? And I was gonna say, I have no idea. I don't know what the plan is because it's not clear to the citizens, and that's the problem. What are your options? You can then choose one that I disagree with, but show me three different options that we're routing for three different reasons, and then make a decision, and I'll have to deal with like it or not, but I'll know what I'm getting into. Even more than that, you mentioned the lack of data. And aside from the fact that the ministers themselves seem to have very contradicting data, and some of it seems to be inherently false, but they have, have announced that they're going to be pushing for a fourth vaccine. Where is the data? They have stated numerous times that they're going to upload the data behind it and their research. As of yet, they have not done so. But if they even thought about discussing this, they immediately should have had the debates where they discuss this fully publicized for every citizen. They should have pushed this as clear as possible. Even right now, in their debates, they're sitting and discussing whether or not they should be giving cash rewards for anyone who goes and gets vaccinated with a, or gets a booster or anyone who gets their children vaccinated. A, you're just getting, giving anyone who didn't want to do it in the first place, you're giving them a bonus. You're saying, don't go get vaccinated originally and you get a bonus when eventually you do get vaccinated. The next time around this happens, since if you're pushing for a fourth vaccine, it seems like we're going to be doing this every six months, at least for the foreseeable future. And aside from that, what their plan is and what their true measure is doesn't seem to be very clear to anyone here, even to themselves. What you see, as in with many of the ministers, the biggest critics of Bennett's moves here, that he was, as he said, to quote Bennett, he was being hysteric, were the ministers of his own government saying, you're going too far. These restrictions are not needed. And that was our COVID update of the week. And now we move on to our next topic. So we want to discuss a poll that came out recently. This poll is by Channel 13 and Direct Polls. Uh, this poll was published earlier in the week and is the first poll where we see Bennett actually rising. Bennett's party of Yamina rises up to nine mandates. Um, the other party that is supposedly from the right in this government, the New Hope Party, actually passes the minimum of mandates needed to pass it. It's, it's four mandates. Um, the Likud hits 33, the Shatid 19, um, and the Tzirun hits seven. This is very important to pay attention to because this is the first major poll since even before the formation of this government. We've actually seen a significant rise 
for Bennett. Now, to be clear, for those who may think this might be a biased poll or might be other things, there are other polls from the same pollster who have shown Bennett consistently on very, very low margins and sometimes not even passing. So this was very surprising, but also there's a couple of reasonings that we could think of for why this would happen, why this makes sense. You know, we've discussed a couple of weeks ago the economic changes that have been done that really are making a huge positive difference. And those could definitely bring up his numbers. At the same time, I'm not sure how much they publicly, like one of our issues was that it wasn't pushed enough to the public how substantial these economic reforms really are for the citizens. Especially since most of them are incredibly important in value, but mainly in the longer term. Which is why it would be a challenge to convey it, but I think that some people might be understanding that. Another big one is the extreme work that the Minister of Religion, Matan Kahana, is doing. I don't like the term against the Haredim, even though I believe the voters that are deciding to vote for Bennett now or pushing towards Bennett now are actually because they're against the Haredim. But it's really just a matter of settling the corruption in the country. And that's one of the big corrupt organizations in the country. And he is making the almost effort, Matan Kahana is in Fatali Bennett's party, to stand strong. And he has been attacked from every single corner, viciously. And he has stood strong and hasn't wavered for a second. And that shows character and shows strength for someone as a political figure. The third one could be... As we mentioned earlier in this podcast, you know, some would not like his corona views and the way that he's being strict and holding strong, but there are many people in the country that are big supporters of that, and that's something that pushes forward that he was prepared, and now that the Omicron is, the whole world is figuring out that it was serious, and Bennett knew it was coming, that is a bulk of voters that could have possibly moved over. And just naturally things, you know, after the budget passing and now coming and standing strong, and he still has a, a nice while till he finishes his prime ministership and supposed to transfer it over to Yair Lapid. The people are seeing him more as a prime minister. Now, to be clear, these are four options and speculations of why this could happen. It could also be a a momentary blip, and we'll see in the next polls that it goes down. But it will be interesting to see if this continues in the coming weeks and months. So I completely uh, agree with you, and to try to understand which of those options pushed to this jump in the polls, and whether or not it's just a momentary blip, we have to try to look at where the numbers came from. As we mentioned in the past, in the end of the day, it's a zero-sum game. There's only 120 mandates to be divvied up between these parties, meaning some of these parties had to lose mandates for them to gain the polls. So there's three parties that appear to have lost the mandates that went to Yeshatid and to Yamina. So the first party that appears to have lost is Shas. The, Haridi, the two Haredi parties, Shas and Yadut Tawa, who usually sit on eight or seven mandates, and, and together they usually sit on somewhere between 15 to 16. Currently they're both sitting on seven, meaning they would be at 14 mandates, which is relatively low number for them. And the main question would be why? So this is actually very simple um, as to why they will lose. The Haredis uh, have a very big conflict within their own base right now, because they, on the one hand, are very, very used to being in power. People like to think that the right has been in power forever. The answer is, honestly, the Haredis have been in power forever. Aside from a little uh, skint there in 2013, even whether or not it was a right-wing government, whether or not it was a left-wing government, the Haredis tend to be big players. They tend to get a lot out of it. And they get paid off, essentially. They get budgets, they get different 
tax, uh, and they did get different stuff for uh, their schools and, and all the jobs that they wanted in the main uh, kashors and everything else. And they're out of power. People are attacking their base of power and all their jobs. And essentially, they, they're afraid, and they're, and they're not members of the committees. They're boycotting everything, essentially losing more by not playing along. Because they were offered a lot of stuff just to come and negotiate on a new reform with the government. And it's coming back to bite them. And I think that their voter base might be saying, you screwed up. Now, do I, I don't think that their votes necessarily went to Yamina or, or uh, Tikva Chadashat to the New Hope Party. I actually think that they probably went to Smutlitz, who is the closest to them ideologically, and that his votes might have changed around a bit. Um, the two other parties to look at are going to be the Likud and Yeshati. The Likud party isn't that high right now, but in the polls it has been ranking at around 35, well, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower. But they've been having a lot of very public infighting lately between uh, Netanyahu, Israel Katz, Nebakat. A lot of very, very public infighting and nasty fights between them. And they may be hurting them. Maybe people might be seeing them fracturing inside. People might be saying they're no longer, they haven't been in power for a long time. Um, unless Bakat gets in, they don't see them coming into power again. And before we delve into that part a little deeper, the last party that they t most likely took these votes from is Yeshatid, uh, their partner in this government. Uh, the, this is the one to look at, because Yeshatid in the polls has been ranking in the low 20s, but this is a slight drop for them, but still high, high for them. And why is this important? What does this portray for Yemina's party? This portrays Yemina's party as a center party, not even necessarily a center-right party. Which means it could be COVID, it could be him being portrayed as a prime minister, it could be fighting the Haredis, which was a lot of um, Yeshatid's original uh, point of view on the matters. All of these tends to point as Yamina being a center party, which is essentially what a governing, a governing party usually is. It's more to the center than the rest of the government. And him taking those votes from Yeshatid, if that's what he's attempting to portray to the public, would be a logical conclusion to come from that. Again, it's not necessarily that Bennett is strong enough to be a governing party, once again, it's that he is attempting to portray himself in the public and it may be caught in the public eye as a more center to center right party than a far right party that he believes himself to be. Now it's important to understand as you were discussing the inner conflicts in the Likud party, right now there's a new faction in the Likud called well, the new Likud members, and they are very complicated because they are coming in to try to renew the members of the Likud party. And the people that are supporting them very strong are Israel Katz and Nir Barakat, the two runner-ups that are wanting to challenge Bibi for his position as the head of the Likud. And Bibi is doing everything he can to get them removed from the party. Now there are claims that they're saying that they are left-wing members and they're not or even a, really believers in Likud, they're trying to destroy the Likud, but it's a big, big inner conflict of the Likud which affects whether or not it will run. And this comes also on a poll that came out about the Likud being run by other members. And they checked what would be the polls of the government if different members of the Likud were the heads of 
the Likud instead of Bibi. And they tested whether or not Miri Regev, Yisrael Akats, Nir Barakat. And the end result was that in every situation, anyone that switches Bibi, the numbers will go down, but they will be vastly different. And the number one person is that if Nir Barakat took over the Likud, they would move down from 33 to 29, but he would still be by far the largest party in the government. The second largest party would be Yair Lapid with 19, so more than 10 seats larger than Yair Lapid's party. And they would have 67 seats in the right wing that would agree to sit under Nir Barakat. And this is a very big statement that's all coming in together with these new Likud members that are coming in to vote for the primaries in the Likud, and it will be very interesting to see how this unfolds. As we mentioned, there is no primaries right now for the Likud. There's no primary set or even a date. I mean, I believe that there's a date for a couple of years from now, but um, we'll have to wait and see, you know, and obviously BB is going to play the power of when is best for him to go for primaries, and uh, we'll have to see how it goes. And for our next topic... So something that will most likely hurt the poll numbers of this uh, <laughs> party uh, is... The Yishuv Chomish, uh, we discussed last week the terrible terrorist attack um, where Yehuda was killed um, when a terrorist, a bunch of terrorists, opened fire on a moving vehicle outside of the Yishuv Chomish, killing Yehuda and injuring two others severely. Uh, both those terrorists have thankfully been caught, but um, a new issue has arisen. Um, the government is now moving to kick everyone out once again out of the settlement of Chomish and the yeshiva that was built there and the four surrounding settlements. So, a little history about the place. Um, these settlements that originally there were removed and everyone was kicked out of there by Ariel Sharon in the law of the Hitatkut. Um, he added uh, the Tzfon Shamon probably just to spite the settlers it had no logistic or practical importance for any of the moves he was attempting to make. And this is not my opinion, this is the opinion of Professor Bashan, who is a member of the left, a prominent member of the left, who speaks consistently on the news. Um, he happens to be from the old school left, whose opinions are very based and is very easy to speak to. Um, but he even stated that uh, when he when discussing it this week, that Shawan did this just to spite the settlers. Anyway, he added these settlements into part of the Tatkut plan, which was voted on in 2005, um, essentially making it illegal uh, to have any settlements there, removing the settlements from there, and not being allowed to rebuild. Point being, beginning of this government, they stated that they were going to find a solution, if it being uh, putting into law, allowing the Tzfon Shamon to be resettled. Um, Tzfon Shamon is the north of, the Shemo, of, the, of Samaria, and... Um, uh, or different versions, they had a law to deal with these settlements. After the terrorist attack, they are now moving to kick everyone out of the settlements. This resulted in big protests. Thursday night, around, estimation was 15,000 people, went to the settlement to protest about the uh, destruction of the yeshiva and the removal of the people from this area, crying and saying that uh, the next terrorist attack that happens will be on the hands of this government and the blood will be in their hands because that they're saying that clearly the terrorist attacks work if now this settlement is going to be uprooted because of it. So it's not being uprooted because of the terrorist attack. It's being uprooted in spite of the terrorist attack. Now, 
my issue is very different than one that, that is being painted here. I'm a very legal person. I believe in law. And I don't believe that the law should be affected by public outcry or by how it looks. I don't mean it in this situation. I definitely don't mean it in others. Which means the terrorist attack to me, it could be a public government decision that there was a terrorist attack, therefore we are legalizing this area. That's a legitimate decision for a government to make. But until the government does not make that decision, there is no connection between there being a terrorist attack here to upholding the law and removing the people from that settlement. Now, why? where is my issue that's much deeper than that? Is that I agree that if the law says that they should be doing it for this settlement, they should much more be doing it in many, many other places in which it is illegal and they are not obeying the law because it doesn't look good. You know, there was a incredible interview with the Minister of Internal Defense, Omer Barlev, which is a left-wing member that constantly hates and bashes on the Judean Samaria citizens of this country. And he comes out and they said, I don't understand why we're removing this right after the terrorist attack. And he says, because it has nothing to do with one another, there is a law and it is illegal and therefore we have, even if we don't want to, we have to uphold the law in every place in which the law says. And then they said, wow, is that why? And they used the most brilliant words. They said, is that why? You're going, you're going to remove the illegal settlement of Khan al-Akhmar? And he got silent. He, he, he literally started mumbling like a, like a child. Uh, no, that's, that's different. That's a situation in which is comp... Wait, so we're very confused. It's an illegal settlement by your definition, and therefore it must be removed. There is no, it's not about, as he mentioned, even if we feel bad, even if it's outcry, it has to happen. And that shows the extreme hypocrisy. Because it's very clear the reason they're removing Khan al-Akhmar is because of either public outcry or international pressure. If those are legitimate reasons, then there's no reason to uphold the law when it comes to this settlement either. So public outcry is a little bit more complicated than that. Because in the end of the day, when it's, the gov when it's a law that was instituted by a government, a different government can uphold that law, essentially. Meaning, if they wanted to, and they spoke of it many times in the past, they could easily push a law stating that they can now settle the areas of northern Samaria. Um, and if there's strong enough public outcry, then yes, that public outcry makes a big difference. And that big difference should affect whether or not you come and remove this settlement or not. Now, is it comparable to Khan al-Akhma? Of course, in Khan al-Akhma, should it be removed, especially by the members of this government that pushed so many times in the past for it to be removed. But once again, it never is because they're too afraid to do it. But I disagree with you that this won't cause another terrorist attack because whilst you may be right, let's say you were right that the law is completely forces them to do this and the law was completely on their side. I know that, you know that. Does the terrorists know that? If the 15,000 people that went up to Chomish to protest aren't so sure about that, are you, su are you sure the maniac who's walking around with a gun and shooting people, uh, shot people outside of Chomish, you think he knows that? Do you think it, that's a fair, uh, fair analogy? Do you think it's fair for the people that live their lives in fear and essentially give up a good portion of, uh, of their lives to try and build something, to push forward the settling of this land? Who, who sacrifice a lot and to know that everything they do is essentially in vain. They live in the hardest parts of the country, they give a lot, 
And you're saying if they get killed, it will only result in goods for the people who killed them. No, let me be very clear. I 100% believe that this move will cause further attempts for terrorist attacks. I think it's horrific. I just don't think that it's illegal. I don't think that, this, that the working on it, I don't think that having a terrorist attack equals, from a legal perspective, not upholding the law. Change I think the it's law. The, that's the government's job. And they said they would do it. Then the government should be attacked for it every single day. But from a conceptual perspective, there is nothing wrong with upholding the law. There's either a problem with the law, or worse, there is a problem with choosing when and where to uphold the law. So that's a really good segue into our next topic. So speaking of laws, we discussed last week a law that would allow a cop to go into a person's home without a warrant to search for evidence that may be tampered with or destroyed by the time he takes to go find a warrant. So they have changed some of the laws and they have put it up to a vote and it's officially been approved by the government. Um, and the current status of the law states that it will be a three to four year temporary measure. Um, and then it will have to be renewed by the government in question. So, A, that sounds a lot better. And it is essentially slightly better. It's a temporary measure. But as history has taught us in many different countries, temporary measures tend to become permanent. Governments don't give it up so easily. Yes, it's very nice to say that the voters, that the people who you voted in will have to answer to you when they reapprove this in four years. But reproving something is a lot quieter than instituting in the first place. No one hears about something. No one hears about the fact that we're in a state of emergency for the past 70 years that we reapprove re every year. And I think it's still a very, very bad precedent, aside from the civil rights it breaks, even with the fact that it's a four, just a four-year temporary measure. Okay, so with that, we'll move on to our next topic. M.K. Itamar Ben-Gvir from the Tsionuta Datit Party was at an event in Tel Aviv this week in which there was a conflict with two Arab workers in the parking lot. Videos started coming out of Ben Gear pulling out his gun, well actually taking a gun from a person that was next to him, waving the gun, not towards the people, but waving the gun out, making it very clear towards them that they are endangering him and he's threatening them, while they are cursing each other out. There was other videos coming out from before the scene of those two Arab members cursing at the MK, threatening to kill him, threatening to molest him, and many other uh, uh, vulgar terms that were done, and said, put away the gun and I'll show you what, what we can do and meet me outside, and therefore. And this gave an explosion on both sides of, of the political range. Those on the right coming and saying that those Arabs are dangerous, and you could see they didn't, how dare they threaten a, a Knesset member. And those on the left saying, look at this lunatic throw, taking out his gun in a small conflict that you guys were mad at each other, and therefore you started waving a gun, and if you were a regular citizen, your gun would be taken away right away and be arrested, and it's dangerous. And they ended up both opening up complaints to the police. You know, ben also stated at first that they, they were arrested, they were not arrested, they were just detained to get information and they were immediately released. They weren't even taken to the station, they were just questioned on the scene. Um, and they went to the police to then give a complaint. Ahmed Tibi, the Arab party member, went with them as his, their heroes to the police 
And at, when they're at the police station, they figured out that one of those guys is a two times convicted felon and it just got very complicated. Now, my feelings on the matter are twofold. One, I don't like, I mean, there's nothing you can really do about it because it's the world that we live in and it's how it works, but I don't like, and this is true almost all over the world, that things are dealt with by what's videoed. Like, it's, it's almost sometimes ridiculous to me that like, exact same situations happen, but if there was no camera involved, this is true when it comes to soldiers, citizens, you know, any anything, that if there's a video camera, suddenly we make a big deal about it. Definitely this happened in America, obviously, all the time when it comes to the cops and the citizens. But if there's no video camera, let's be clear, not if there's no proof. Let's say I could bring proof to the police and I could show it. But if it's not in the public view, then we don't deal with it. And if it is in the public view, suddenly everything stops to take care of it. And I don't like that the police works by what the public decides that interests them. And, and that bothers me. The second part is really deep question of the information here. There's issues on both sides here. And let me be clear, we're dealing with the information that we have, because again, unfortunately, it's all by the videos that we got and not by the police investigation that is being done. But assuming they came and they really threatened him immediately and started cursing at him and started saying that they're going to attack him, he has the right to pull out his gut weapon. Again, he pointed at them. He just made it clear that he had it. On the other hand, is it correct that when there's just a conflict in a parking lot and people are mad at each other, you pull out a weapon? No, that's something that if for any other citizen, you would come out and say, absolutely not, you should not doing it. The crucial part to me is the fact that he is a member of the Knesset. Now this is, again, twofold. On the one hand, I do expect a higher level of, not morality, but a higher level of upholding the law from a member of the Knesset that is representing. And as people on the left said, and I agree with them, that if he pulls out his weapon without just in, when he's in a slight argument with someone, that pushes all of his followers to feel more comfortable to just pull out their weapon when they feel the slightly threatened, not even if it's for their life, but threatened by another person of any type of violence, you pull out a gun, which is not the correct answer. The other hand, this is something that I've been seeing happening in the last coming years, which is the weakening of the understanding of what it means to be a Knesset member. There is laws about Knesset members in this country. There are 120 members and they are, from a personal perspective, executive privilege, which means, you know, we have to protect our Knesset members. And it starts with the fact that soldiers dare push and limit the entrance of Knesset members. Just last week, just last week, Ben Gvir was stopped by the police in a certain area because they said, oh, you can't enter it because we were given a note that we have to remove everyone from the premises. Guess what? That's exactly the job of a Knesset member, to be in those places and make sure things happen correctly and make sure they happen fair. There is a clear law, unless it is private property, which this is obviously not, or if it is an endangerment to the secure, national security of the country, are the only two situations you can limit travel of a Knesset member. A Knesset member's job is to enter scenes that are complicated and be there to follow up and make sure that things are done as they are done because that is what we voted them in for. And time after time again, we're seeing that there's zero respect and zero fear for these Knesset members. When a Knesset member shows up, you have to know and we see in different protests that Knesset members are being shoved and I'm talking about both sides and I've said in this podcast too, when an Arab Knesset member was shoved by a soldier, I said that soldier and his commander and his commander should be put up immediately to court-martial for this happening and not being prepared to know he is a Knesset member. You cannot touch him. 
because it is the only way they could do their job. And the snowball effect of that is having a Knesset member have a cursing out argument with two citizens, Arab citizens that are staring at him and just threatening him for his life. And again, I'm not talking about whether or not the threatening on his life was real and therefore he could have pulled out the gun. It's not the debate. The fact that someone dares look at a Knesset member, which is chosen by the people. He's not someone who is appointed in man of power. He's chosen by voters. And when we get to a situation, when I look at a video of two citizens threatening and cursing out in the face of a Knesset member, I feel saddened by where we are in our country. So we'll continue to update you on this story as the police investigation goes forth. Um, but uh, as we discussed, uh, Knesset members aren't above the law, which leads us into our next story. Um, the head of the Haredi party of Shas, Aryeh Devi, is going to be taking a plea deal on a corruption case um, with the Attorney General stating that he will be quitting the Knesset um, and he will and will be losing his position as a MK. He will remain the head of Shas. Um, he will be prosecuted, but he will be do, doing so without Kalon. Why don't you explain to us what Kalon is, Yonatan? So Kalon is, in English, called an attainder, a stain on the criminal act that was done. What does this mean? When one does something criminal and goes to court, he is then sentenced. And there are different types of criminal activities that have this attainder and ones that don't. What does the difference mean? An attainder means that if one committed a criminal act with an attainder for certain amount of years, he is not allowed to take any public office. That means cannot be elected for the Knesset, cannot run for any position that is public, cannot be appointed to any public position, because the idea is that they decide these criminal acts, even if he did his sentencing, let's say sat two years in jail, but then got out, is that he can be a free citizen and he obviously paid his due, but he still can't hold public office because the criminal fare was immoral. Now, not all crimes have an attainder, but many do. The whole conflict we had right now with Arya Derry is that he was being charged with tax evasion of a lot of money. And tax evasion, from a theoretical perspective, is a crime that has an attainder. And therefore, he would not be able to continue being a Knesset member and would not be able to run for the next Knesset as well. The agreement that happened was very, very interesting. The one hand, they agreed and they said that they will be, he will be admitting to committing tax evasion, but he will be admitting that he did tax evasion without his knowledge. As in, and therefore, he does not have to get an attainder, but he can. His next move was, which was brilliant, you know, he, as Benyamin mentioned, is now quitting as a member of Knesset. Many people thought him quitting as a member of Knesset was part of the deal. You know, I don't give you jail time, but you have to leave the Knesset. That was not the deal. He did not have to leave the Knesset. Him leaving the Knesset was a brilliant move by Arya Derry to not get the attainder. What do I mean? If he is convicted right now, but he stays as a Knesset member, the attorney general has to discuss and debate and make a decision whether or not the act, the crime that he committed has an attainder and therefore he cannot continue to be a Knesset member. But the second he leaves being a Knesset member right after being convicted, there is no public interest in the debate of whether or not there's a attainder or not because there's no situation where it needs to be debated. 
And therefore, if he leaves right now, then the Attorney General doesn't have to discuss there, that he has an attainder. He will not have an attainder. And the next time he runs for government, he can run for the Knesset and it won't even be a debate because it would have already been decided that there is no attainder on the crime. Which is very important to him because for him, his point of view, he's been in power forever. To be clear, he literally has been in power forever. He's been in the Knesset for, I believe, over 40 years at this point, give or take. Um, he's been a minister multiple times. He's gone to jail for corruption uh, in the Minister of the Interior, got out of jail, waited his uh, term of his first attainer, and then went back to the same exact position he got arrested for corruption in the first place. Um, and from his point of view, he doesn't mind waiting outside of the Knesset for a few years, still controlling the party from outside. And when it comes up that this government's out of the way, and he's once again up for ministership, great, now he goes up to the Supreme Court when they debate whether or not he's allowed to get a ministership and say, there was no attainder added to my, uh, my case, there's no reason I shouldn't be able to get a ministership. And with that, we would like to close this week's episode. We thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed. We remind you to share us on social media. And if you have any questions, email us at hwga.pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This is Here We Go Again. <laughs>